trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I hope you're ready for some world-class wrong think today. Because I've got some great articles I'm going to share with you, as well as a few thoughts and commentaries about what's going on around us. I'm going to turn into a bookworm here for a few minutes. I hope that doesn't you know, offend those people who really you know, aren't into books. But I have to confess, the greatest favor that my mom ever did for me was to teach me to love reading at a very young age. She started out reading to me. She actually taught me how to read by the time I got into kindergarten. This is a flex, by the way. Look how smart I am. No, Uh, by the time I got into kindergarten, though, I was reading on my own. And uh, that's not to say I had nothing left to learn. I'm just saying that it was something I was comfortable with. I spent many, many hours lost in books. And it's a love that I've carried with me into adulthood. I still maintain, you know, especially on, on a cold winter's day, I I cannot think of a finer activity than to be sitting next to a fire reading something that uh, is is making my mind work. I love it. And so when I talk about libraries, I have to wonder, first of all, what has happened to the library? Now, look, my mom was very good about taking us kids to the library, and, and I would, you know, I love that you could find books on any subject. For some reason, I really got into UFOs when I was a kid. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I missed my calling. I should be that guy on, on the History Channel. It's aliens, you know, whatever. But uh, I loved going and exploring what was available. And uh, and to me, the library was, was just one of those places where I could go to gain a better understanding of the world around me. And again, I carried this with me not only through childhood, but through my adolescence into young adulthood. And it's only in recent years, I guess the Internet kind of uh, made the library in some ways not as necessary because now I could access a lot of that information from home. I could order books, you know, from Amazon and so forth. But have you noticed that the libraries have become a cultural battlefield here of late? And I think it's important that we take a really close look at this because, um, you know, people forget sometimes prior to the invention of the uh, the movable type printing press, right? Gutenberg's invention. I think it was uh, mid 1400s, 1452-ish that uh, that Gutenberg came out with his printing press. And it was a truly revolutionary technology. How revolutionary? Well, at the time, you know, the, the Catholic Church had a very strong hold over um, not just people, but the, but the world. And part of it was because only those who were authorized to uh, read the scriptures could read the scriptures and then, you know, tell the people what it all meant. But with the invention of the printing press, scripture didn't have to be copied by hand painstakingly and then handed down. It was something that could be mass produced and and people could begin to read for themselves. And and I'm just, I'm going to try to connect a whole bunch of dots here really quickly. This is where the enlightenment sprang from. Once the people could access the scriptures, you notice that's, that's when the Reformation started, the Renaissance began, the, the Enlightenment followed not long after that, and it was Enlightenment thinking that ultimately led to the founding of America. It was Enlightenment thinking that informed the thinking of the founding generation and the system of government that they crafted, which 
in spite of its flaws, which are many these days because we've departed from those principles, but in spite of its flaws, it was one of the finest systems of government ever conceived by the mind of man. And if you look back at world history, you'll find that most historians would agree that uh, one of the greatest tragedies that occurred in in world history was uh, the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. Why? Because there was so much accumulated knowledge there. And this is going to anger some people, but it still needs to be said. It was the it was the Muslim world, it was Islam that protected so much of the the knowledge of western civilization during the dark ages when information was very tightly controlled. What we have today is the canon of western thought was preserved by Islam. And and they had great reverence for libraries because of that. Now, whatever other faults you want to find, that's that's on you. But all I'm saying is that information mattered. And and the point I'm trying to make here is just simply this. Historically, if you want to if you want to transmit culture and civilization to following generations, libraries have been the tool by which that's been done. Because it introduces people to literacy, to books, to ideas. And it does it outside of a, of a learning environment. In other words, it's self-driven. It's, it's the kind of environment where people would go if they want to know for themselves. And, you know, look, you take the kids to the library. They're, they're not going to head for the periodicals. Say, Where's the latest copy of Foreign Affairs? And I'm going to sit and, you know, digest this so I can get a better feel for the world. But guess what? Mom or dad, that's something you can do. You can read scholarly journals, you can read fiction, you can read whatever you want, but the bottom line is that's where people can go to learn and to discover knowledge. So isn't it interesting how the library, at least, and I'm, I'm talking primarily here in my home state of Idaho, I'm looking at a terrible battle that's taking place here over the kinds of materials that are being made available in libraries. In fact, my friend Brian Alman from the Idaho Freedom Foundation, this is on his Gem State Substack talks about the library as a cultural battlefield. And his point is, we didn't start this fight, but we can't run from it. He asks the question, why are libraries a battlefield in the culture war? And for that matter, why did moderate Republicans like Julie Yamamoto, Lori McCann, and Greg Lanting join forces with far-left Democrats like Ileana Rubel and Colin Nash to oppose a bill the Idaho legislature considered that simply said libraries and schools must be held to the same standards as convenience stores with regards to allowing children access to obscene materials. I'm going to be blunt here for a moment. We're talking about books that are made for children, that are targeted to a youthful child audience, teaching kids how to perform oral and anal sex, teaching them to explore masturbation, teaching them to explore same-sex sexual activities, teaching them to explore incest. I mean, it's, yeah, it's dark stuff. And yet somehow we're told, well, these kids need to be offered all the information out there, all the good information. How is that good information? And Brian asks, you know, why did these, first of all, why did these legislators decide that, well, they need to have access to these materials. Why did Governor Little Little veto the bill that would have restricted access to these kinds of materials? Why did a group of concerned parents file a petition to actually disband the Meridian Library District? Why was the opposition so fierce? Brian says, I see two major factions on the field. He says, on the left, you have those who very much want children to be exposed to graphic materials. 
They are fully committed to queer theory, which says that what we call childhood innocence is really cis-heteronormative oppression and that children need exposure to graphic LGBTQ plus materials to awaken their latent queerness. That does sound about right. But Brian Allman says, look, these people are insane and we must protect our children from them at all costs. That makes us the right side of this battlefield. In the middle, you're going to find normal people who would never support giving pornography to children, but are swayed by arguments based on tolerance, compassion, and diversity. They escape the cognitive dissonance of their position by pretending there's nothing objectionable in our libraries. And that anyone saying otherwise is a rabble-rouser, probably a California transplant, who's exaggerating a non-issue for political power. He's right, by the way. That's exactly the script that they're following. In fact, he says, we saw this cognitive dissonance on display when uh, Representative Julie Yamamoto, chairman of the House Education Committee, argued on the floor that this House Bill 314 was a bad bill because children don't really have access to obscene materials. But then she disallowed citizens from reading materials to her in the committee hearing because there were underage pages in the room. In other words, this is not appropriate, but... Yeah, for these people to hear, these these young people in the in the actual legislative hearing, well, we don't want them hearing this kind of filth, but we do want them to have access to it. She tried to argue that the bill was about criminalizing the Chronicles of Narnia rather than keeping kids from books like Gender Queer. Now, Brian says uh, a lot of people are like Representative Yamamoto. They know in their hearts that something's wrong, but they're too afraid of what the newspapers will say about them if they speak up. They want to pretend that it's still 1993 and the public square is still a safe, neutral place and this controversy over libraries is just a tempest in a teapot. In fact, he says they find it easier to mock and condemn concerned parents and conservatives than to take a serious look at what's happening before their eyes. And one of the reasons that it's easier is because our local media has stacked the deck against them. He says the supposed journalists of Idaho's corporate media are far to the left of Idaho's citizens and they've made it their mission to turn the state blue one viewer at a time. Specifically, he singles out uh, KTVB's resident vlogger, uh, Brian Holmes, who was aghast that, that uh, Brian Allman, someone who advocated for conservatives to be involved with their communities, would be appointed to the Eagle Library Board. Yeah, I mean, they were like, oh, we've got to get this guy out of here because <laughs> he might bring conservative values. So for all that talk of inclusivity, they're really not uh, into that, apparently. Going to come back to what Brian's article. You will find a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Stay with me. I'll be back in just a moment. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Um, again, I'm sharing an article here from Brian Alman from his Gem State Substack, and uh, I'm going to recommend this. This is one you should probably subscribe to if you want to get a good, I think, uh, fair and even-handed analysis of what's going on. Now, this is this is very Idaho-centric, but I'm telling you, his principles will translate well into any place that uh, that you might be from which you might be listening. Again, it's gemstate.substack.com. Won't cost you anything to subscribe, but uh, but if you find value in Brian's work, maybe throw a few shekels his way because he really does fantastic work here. And he's talking about how the library is now a cultural battlefield. 
It's not just happening in Idaho. This is happening in other places as well. In fact, yesterday was an election, and uh, there were elections to various library boards. And it really came down to, well, on the one hand, you have these book burners, which would be individuals who are trying to maintain, hey, there's stuff that's appropriate and there's stuff that's inappropriate for kids. They're the ones portrayed as book burners. Then you have us, the reasonable adults, who think your kids need to be told, you know, taught how to do butt stuff. I mean, it's just insane. Brian says, every night our media tells viewers that conservative values are bad, while progressivism is an unabashed good. They tell you that anyone concerned about graphic materials in the library is a bigot, a white supremacist, a radical, and that all right-thinking people should disavow such things. They even mislead people. News coverage of the petition to dissolve the Meridian Library District implied that the result would have been closing the libraries themselves rather than simply replacing the Board of Trustees. Now, thankfully, there are people who are willing to endure media slander and stand up for children and for traditional values. For instance, in Meridian, Idaho, David Tizecker and uh, Xavier Torres are on the ballot for their library board, and Brian says they both have my full and unequivocal endorsement. He goes into why these are good individuals to represent the interests of the community. And one of the things that it comes down to is parents need to have a voice in what materials are available to, to children. Brian says that's the question at the heart of all this, isn't it? Is a public community library accountable to the activists in the American Library Association and their state affiliates, many of whom truly want to expose your children to objectionable content? Or is it accountable to the families who actually use the library? Perhaps the people of Meridian want porn in the children's section. The proof of the pudding will be laid bare when we see the election results tonight. By the way, I don't know how that turned out. But uh, I, I believe, uh, from what I saw in the early returns today, um, I'm not sure that, 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 uh, that the conservative candidates carried the day in Meridian. They did in northern Idaho. So that's a good thing. But the bottom line is this. The culture war is upon us whether we wish it or not. Brian Allman says, perhaps people are still holding on to their cognitive dissonance, ignoring the tough issues, and taking the path of least resistance. Just as moderates voted for Joe Biden in 2020, vainly hoping to bring back a 1990s-era normalcy, so people may vote for the media-approved candidates hoping to sweep the problem under the rug, but that would be a mistake. The public square, including our libraries, are not value-neutral safe spaces. They're the front line in the battle for the minds and souls of children. So the battle lines are drawn. He says the war will be won by showing up and making your voice heard through the ballot box. I would submit to you that it also includes what you do before and after voting. And more importantly, parents, you know, if, if you're not in close contact with your kids and communicating with them about the materials that they're accessing, you'd be shocked at some of the stuff that will get snuck past you in the name of, hey, we're just trying to give your kids, you know, all the information that they need to make informed decisions, which somehow informed decisions seems to equate with uh, into questioning their own gender or exploring, um, you know, new and, and exciting perversions. Who'd have thought this is what it would come down to, but, but here we are. So I hope you'll check out Brian's article again. That's Brian Alman from the Gem State Substack, gemstate.substack.com. By the way, if you haven't spent time on Substack, can I just recommend, this is a place where really you will find unfiltered content and that doesn't mean everything you find is going to be absolutely the truth and you can hang your hat on it no matter what. You're still going to have to be a truth detector. You're going to have to be your own fact checker. 
But my point here is that you don't have to fight your way through a bunch of filters being imposed by people who are just trying to protect you from misinformation, which means um, basically they're the ones who are trying to keep you from seeing things that could lead you to the truth. By the way, if you subscribe to my show notes, you'll see the, the meme that I shared today is uh, Jim from The Office with his, uh, with his whiteboard. How do you tell who's telling the truth? Well, he says the ones trying to silence other people are the ones lying. So if they're trying to silence them through that guilt by association, you're a book-burning Nazi. You're an extremist. Maybe uh, check it out for yourself. Go to the source. Anyway, that's uh, something to consider. And, and I would encourage you, um, you know, take your kids to the library. And if you see things in the library, I mean, if it, I, I know libraries are, they, they're portrayed, well, but we're just a safe space for everybody now. But if you see your library engaging in activism, I would say diplomatically, but, uh, but clearly bring it up to the people in charge. Talk to the librarian. Why is this on, on display here? Why is this going on? Why is it so important that our kids, you know, be indoctrinated into or inducted into the Rainbow Mafia? Maybe that's not such a great idea. I also would recommend uh, you, you be building your own book collection at home. I'm not going to have anything like a big presidential library, but uh, my kids are already dreading the day that I die because I do have a lot of books. I've collected a lot of stuff over the years, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I've I, when I've had to go through and pare them down, the last couple of moves that I've made, I've I've actually had to go through and say, okay, am I ever likely to need this book or want to use this book again? I gave away what I felt like I really wasn't going to read again, but some books that I felt like had value that I would want my grandkids to have if we were all boarding a spaceship to go start anew somewhere else, these are the ones I'd want to take with. They're the books that teach us about human nature. They're the classics that every time you return to them, you can find something new, something that, that informs you better about who you are and about what matters. Sometime I should I should probably share. In fact, no, I'll do it right now. I got just a minute here. Let me let me share with you a couple of thoughts on reading books because uh, there there are many different ways to read a book, and I know that uh, this is this is one of the things that that blows people away. Is well, you know, how exactly are we supposed to to read books or to consider books? Um, you know, is, isn't it just you know you look at the words on the page and and that's the way that it goes. But there's actually, there's a lot more to reading a book than, than simply just, you know, processing the words on paper. We live in a, an age of information overload. And if, if you are if just casually reading books, you know, just to pass the time as opposed to really gaining understanding, you're missing out on something. There are four different levels at which we read. Now, the first one is elementary reading, in which our goal is just to understand the words on the page. That's the level at which most adults in society read. The second level is called inspectional reading. This is where we discover what a book has to say in a limited amount of time. Most of us did this during school, right, cramming for a test or something like that. The third level is called analytical reading, where we seek to learn what the book says in an unlimited time. But that's where you have to take personal responsibility. Study it out. Figure out the information for yourself. People who study scripture, by the way, regularly use this approach. And the fourth level of reading is known as syntopical reading. That's where you read multiple sources about a particular subject. You're doing as much writing and comparison as you are reading and discussing what you're discovering. 
This is, by the way, from Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book. And it should be very apparent that being well-read is not synonymous rather, with reading a ton of information. People who scan articles on the Internet, they're informed, but they're informed at a superficial level, meaning they might still lack the kind of depth of understanding that could help them think or judge or assess or weigh or determine or evaluate, create, imagine, or even solve problems more efficiently. And it's hard work, so let's not pretend that... uh, You know why it's just the easiest thing? It's like breathing. You just do it. It does take effort to understand. The question is, is it worth it? Okay, as someone who's paid the price, I would say yes, it is worth it. But that's something you're going to have to discover on your own, if you haven't already. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to thank my sponsors who make this program possible. You'll find a link to them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find that by following those links, you can get better acquainted with them. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, tmcpnation.com that's the modern conservative podcast with my friend john harvey and also climbingupward.com we'll actually have john pulver on the program hopefully later this week i know he's got a new grandchild on the way so um john may be occupied but i want to get him back on the program just because wow he's got some great insights so here's one that uh, that I, i found today that i was really excited to share with you And it's the concept that, look, when it comes to history, I don't know if you feel like this. Well, I'm living through historical times, but I'm just a passenger along for the ride. It's not like there's anything I can do. I just have to sit back and be carried along by the events of history. I would beg to differ. In fact, I would go so far as to say, no, we can and should be active participants. I was very grateful to find this article by J.B. Shirk from AmericanThinker.com. The title is Stay Faithful Because History Starts today. He says, if you're like me, the news cycle is one smack to the face after the next. It's not even a cycle at this point. It's more like crawling out of bed under relentless machine gun fire of bad news and trying to survive the day without getting hit. Now, in this sense, getting hit is uh, letting the bastards get you down. He says, excuse my French. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. I look at it as a special challenge that all normal, non-woke, patriotic Americans must accept as part of living through this great period of change. He says, can you witness all the cultural chaos and national harakiri, take a deep breath and give an affirmative nod to the Almighty and say, lay it on me. Let's have it. I can take more. Because he says, at the end of the day, this spiritual contest for the West's future will not be won by those with the most money, power, or spy toys at their disposal. It will be won by those who take everything in stride and continue to stand. In a battle of wills, strength of character alone determines who will prevail. Now, that's a pretty simple truth that we all often ignore, isn't isn't it? J.B. Shirk says it's easy to look at the vast array of forces set against us, a corrupt central government dedicated to censorship, political persecution, and open borders, a corporate oligarchy intent on eliminating private property for all but the reigning few, a new world order where Marxist globalism trades freedom for servitude, and conclude that there's little else to do but grab the nearest cardboard sign and scrawl a final lamentable warning, the end is nigh. 
But J.B. Shirk says to surrender and accept defeat just as things get tough, though, is almost like giving away our principles for free. He says, surely that doesn't make sense. Let me ask you this. Who are more committed to their beliefs? Faithful servants of God who know that family, friends, fellowship, and freedom are worth the cost of any fight? Or an army of woke foot soldiers who just learned yesterday what they claim to believe today and will decide tomorrow that, they, that what they believe today should be outlawed? He says, beliefs made from sand soon blow away. Those toughened through pressure and time become as resilient as diamond. Should that answer change just because the woke foot soldiers are backed by central bank thieves? Corporate propagandists, Machiavellian Machiavellian politicians, or an ocean of Marxist bureaucrats? Or do those social pressures only further strengthen time-tested truths? Shirk says, I would say that to the more concern you have for your immortal soul, the less worried you need be about those who sold their souls long ago. From that standpoint, he says, this ensuing cultural struggle is important because it allows those who know the difference to once again separate the wheat from the chaff. In fact, the more highly we value our principles, the more vexed with uh, those rather with great wealth and power, but no principles will become. The more we embrace struggle as a necessary part of life, the more astounded those who choose physical comfort over spiritual salvation will be. The more we dedicate ourselves to the preservation of truth and virtue, the more invulnerable we become to the machine gun fire of state-sanctioned lies. But he says the vital thing to remember is this. Don't panic. Things are never as good or as bad as they seem. This world has a funny way of pulling the rug from underneath your feet just when you feel most secure and throwing you a lifeline just as you begin to sink. History is imbued with the same effervescence. Few expected the American colonies to subdue the 18th century's undisputed global superpower until they did. Few expected the Soviet Union's Iron Curtain to collapse until it did. Few expected America's Cold War victory to take us down a 30-year march toward Marxist globalism and a deepening loss of personal freedom, until it did. Few expected the World Economic Forum's New World Order to go belly up, until it did. Well, hopefully does. J.B. Shirk says, Strange things happen when people with character and perseverance stand in the road and tell history, this is where you will fork. The beneficiaries of those salubrious course corrections tend to look back at great epical shifts and think, well, that was to be expected. But for the person or the people who lived through those moments of volatile change, the only thing certain was a growing tide of people chose to stand in history's way. In hindsight, hindsight, rather, those present consistently record that they did not know what would happen, but they did have faith. By the way, the founding generation is a marvelous example of this. J.B. Shirk says it's faith that steadies the doubters. It's faith that readies the strong. It is faith that shields against dangers. It is faith that settles past wrongs. In the end, one thing remains indubitably true. Faith wins the day. So he says we won't panic. We will keep our faith. And when enough of us choose to stand in history's way, any mountains before us will move. He says, I believe that, and I hope you do too. Many who work against us are shallow and cruel, and those deficiencies do not win hearts and minds. Whips and chains enslave, but they do not rally people to action. No punishment has ever stirred the soul. These people with power today are in many ways just as artificial as the AI systems they wish to build for our maintenance. 
They fear free thought, so they criminalize dissent as hate. They fear free speech, so they make sure that only some people can be heard. They fear free will, so they build more elaborate prisons to keep us under their control. Notice, though, that it is they who fear the people who think and speak and act freely. Because those who, quote, rule us are shallow, are afraid. And because those who rule us are afraid, they're cruel. He says people with those character flaws cannot lead. They can only use force to try to control how others behave. And that kind of unnatural system does not last. He says, I'm reminded of a political cartoon of a feudal king gazing wordly at an angry mob of townspeople outside the castle gates. A Machiavellian-like advisor says nonchalantly, oh, you don't need to fight them. You just need to convince the pitchfork people that the torch people want to take away their pitchforks. Maybe no other cartoon so incisively describes government's inherent rottenness. Irrespective of the century, region, or political system, every ruling faction's hold on power ultimately depends upon its capacity to successfully divide and conquer its own people. When people appreciate this truth, they demand personal freedom and limited government. When they fail to see that government is a parasite and that they are its host, the people are drained of their vitality and wither away. It is no surprise, then, that the only political language today's ruling factions know is social division. People are divided by their race, sex, ethnicity, religion, class, ideology, citizenship, body weight, family history, attractiveness, health, fetishes, gender fantasies, vaccination status, and a smorgasbord of other traits that bureaucratic manipulators can use to divide us all. So while the trans kids are fighting the biological realists and the race-obsessed are fighting the colorblind, the ruling class smiles because it knows that no one will contest its power. Now, J.B. Shirk asks, what if this centuries-long psychological operation is finally starting to fail? What if government control mechanisms are kicking into higher gears, not because the ruling factions have become more powerful, but rather because they're becoming more vulnerable? What if hidden behind the censorship, propaganda, and surveillance, a real movement for change is taking hold? He says the future always seems certain until it isn't. Now, I don't know about you, but I I actually draw some real encouragement from what he's pointing out here. And it's very clear. I mean, if you've just heard in the last few days, you know, what Biden went and spoke to a a, a black college over the weekend for their graduation and, and did everything in his power just to foment race war. The president of the United States trying to foment racial division. He wouldn't be doing that if he was coming from a position of strength. That is, that is the move of a person who is coming from weakness and fear that they're losing their grip on control. Look at the Department of Homeland Security now trying to train citizens how to spot people who've been radicalized. And by the way, if you believe in freedom, yeah, you're, you're the radicalized one. None of that would be necessary if they really had control. So I guess I I would echo J.B. Shirk's advice. Take heart. Things can change very quickly. I I really liked his analogy of, you know, just when you think you're most secure, that's when suddenly life can pull the rug right out from under your feet. And at the same time, when you feel like I'm going down, you know, this is it. That's when the universe throws you a lifeline. I also agree with his concept of faith is the thing that will get you through those times of uncertainty. You may not know where your feet are going to land, but find the courage to make your legs move. 
and try not to be too surprised when you take that step into darkness and your feet actually touch solid ground. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, moving right along. This is our final segment of today's show. Again, I thank you for uh, taking the time to at least consider what uh, what I'm sharing with you. A lot of voices out there, a lot of people trying to do their part to uh, move the needle in the right direction. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm not asking you to make me a rich, famous person. I'm just asking you to please consider that there might be some some viewpoints here that could expand your uh, your vantage point to where you have a little clearer picture of what's going on. What you do with that information, as always, is up to you. A couple quick articles I want to reference here in this final segment. If you've ever stood up for limited government, I know for a fact you have been accused of being a hypocrite. Why? Because, well, you're enjoying the benefits of the blessings of the political class, and if you didn't like it, you'd be out living on the tundra somewhere. I actually had somebody do this to me the other day. I, I responded to someone's post on Twitter. It was a reporter who was saying, well... You know, now uh, county assessors are concerned that more and more people are starting to be protective about their property, and they don't want assessors coming out there and, and uh, tromping around their property without permission. In fact, they're, they're concerned that people are getting violent about this. And, and my response was, well, you know, sometimes uh, legal plunder can only dress up as, you know, we're only trying to help, you know, so convincingly. And then immediately someone's like, ooh, I've been waiting to use this meme for a long time. And it was some meme about how, if you don't like it, you get out of our society. You go live out in the forest and in the frozen wastelands. You know, they, basically, they want to excommunicate you from, from all the blessings of, uh, of what they claim is, uh, you know, their contribution to civilization. Have you ever known anybody who is standing, you know, firmly in a place where they feel confident that they're right, that would react with that kind of vitriol? You need to go somewhere else and die. Because I never have. I mean, I, I'm okay with, with disagreement, but, uh, you know, I must excommunicate you from society. Nah, that's, that's not the sign of a strong argument. Michael Munger, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a piece titled, You Use the Roads, Don't You? And he says, it happened again just last week. I mentioned at lunch I was a libertarian, and one of my lunchmates snorted and said, what a hypocrite. I bet you drove here today on a public road, didn't you? He says, for some reason, a lot of folks think this is a knockdown argument against classical liberalism because in their view, we all just want a free ride, literally in this case, by enjoying things paid for by others without contributing any of our own income as taxes. Well, since we all run into this dumb argument all the time, he says, I asked my usual question. Now, I've worked to get it down to the fewest words possible because it has more impact that way. My question is, if the slave eats food provided by the master, does that mean the slave consents to slavery? Well, no. Interestingly, many slave owners actually did consider their slaves ungrateful if they ran away. After all, the owners had provided food and housing and clothing, which was expensive. Clearly, the owners were telling themselves a mythical story about positive good, meaning that Africans were better as slaves in America than as free people in their homeland. But the point is that food and access to food was a mechanism of control in the coercive system of slavery. So, to be clear, citizenship is not slavery. He says, I'm just making the point that if one is trapped in a system, then doing what one has to do to survive in the system is not an endorsement of the system. Slavery is a reductio ad absurdum, not a simile in this response. 
He says it's an effective rhetorical response, though, because the critic has to defend on two fronts. Number one, the monopoly provision of road services by the state, and number two, the coercive financing of roads from tax revenue rather than user fees. In fact, the roads is a singularly ineffective example of why libertarians might be mistaken, because roads are actually not public goods in the first place. The description of how the highway system became a state monopoly is quite interesting, as described by Jim Bennett in his recent Independent Institute book, Highway Heist. Now, interestingly, the American fixation on state roads, arising perhaps from the American system of infrastructure creation, is not a feature of other nations' cultural framework, even in the socialist nations of Northern Europe. Cooperative, voluntary road building and maintenance is not an option in the U.S. So the fact that I use public roads doesn't mean that I endorse the monopoly provision of transportation infrastructure. And Michael Munger says, this brings me to the larger point and the real core of the disagreement between classical liberals and collectivists. The threat of coercion, even violence, is not always a problem. The ability to make a promise that I can be forced to keep is actually a benefit, an element of liberty. So having some means of enforcing contracts, even if that involves what would look to an outsider like coercion, is something that transcends the public-private divide. He says the real problem is that the state insists on controlling exclusive powers to provide such services, ranging from enforcement of contracts to the building of roads. What it really comes down to is the actual question of consent and the existence of an exit option. For a choice to be voluntary, there has to be a minimally acceptable alternative. If there is no alternative, guess what? The choice is not voluntary. So the observer cannot infer that, in, that accepting the state's offer to use the roads is an endorsement. He says, suppose that someone stole all my belongings and later offered to return some portion of those belongings to me. Should I be grateful? Certainly not. But I might as well accept the offer since the alternative is worse. Having resources taken from you against your will and then accepting the return of some of those resources in the form of a monopoly road system does not make you a free rider. That's really a well-thought-out response. So you might want to take that one and add it to your quiver of intellectual ammunition. Again, that's from Michael Munger. You will find a link in my show notes that, uh, that can take you directly to this article. All right, let's end on a happy note here. This is I love a good success story, and they take so many different forms. Annie Holmquist from her Substack uh, talks about a child or a couple rather turning a childhood history project into a thriving business. And it all started with a school project, a father's guidance, and some old maple syrup tapping spouts. She says it's often said that one person's junk is another person's treasure. Andy Humphrey would likely agree because the old maple syrup tapping spouts he found in his family's junk drawer back in the fifth grade turned into the thriving business he owns and operates today. An ambitious set of entrepreneurs from America's heartland, Andy and his wife, Marilyn, are proof that the old Protestant work ethic and American ingenuity aren't as dead as we may think. Although they're both only 26 years old, the couple has more than a decade of business experience under their belt experience they're putting to good use as they rapidly expand their various enterprises. In addition to farming several hundred acres and raising beef cattle, the couple owns and operates A&M Pure Maple Syrup in Dallas, Wisconsin. Now, the expansion's been rapid. They produced 5,000 gallons last year, bottling it under their own brand, rather, but also selling it to a wholesaler in Ohio who in turn sells it to well-known companies like Trader Joe's and Cracker Barrel. 
By building relationships and offering higher prices for the syrup of other producers in the area, the Humphreys operation is thriving and becoming an important part of the local community. But the Humphreys don't just stick to plain old maple syrup. Inspired by a bottle of cinnamon-infused syrup on a Walmart shelf, Andy and Marilyn begin experimenting with their own flavored syrup, which includes flavors like wild orange, coffee, and bourbon. And because maple syrup needs a partner, the couple recently acquired Cripple Creek Syrup Company, which boasts a pancake mix made with maple sugar, often sold at many tourist locations around the country. Now, from here, she goes into the story about how did they become so entrepreneurial? And she starts with Andy's story about, you know, being a kid raised on a farm and how uh, um, how his parents taught him the principles of good business at a very early age. Andy followed in his sister's footsteps, starting with a small flock of sheep, then expanding to beef cattle. And that growth was fostered by his father, who gave each child enough capital to start their endeavors offering them three options once they gained footing in their respective business enterprises. The first was you can keep the money, you can spend it on stupid stupid stuff, rather. The second was to sell the product and invest the money in something else, while the third was to keep the product, in this case it was Andy's case, it was his lambs, and then expand on it. But see, his interest didn't just stay with sheep and beef cattle. When he was in fifth grade, he came across a couple of old sap spouts in the family junk drawer. And needing a topic for his Wisconsin State History Project, he researched the maple syrup industry in his state, tapping a few trees and collecting sap in the process. Well, his interest in maple syrup grew, and in 2012, he and his father sectioned off a small portion of woods, helping Andy build a sugar house to boil down the sap. And although the season was a bad one and only lasted three days, it was still a fun family venture. And Andy decided to try it again. Well, he met his wife... They hit it off, and basically it became a project in which they finally decided that to back in 2016 it was time to go big or go home, and they decided to go big. I hope you'll read this article. I, I don't have time to go into any more detail here, but I do have a link to Annie Holmquist's article on uh, tapping into success and how this couple turned what started out as a childhood school project into a thriving business that continues to grow to this day. I love to hear stories like this because it's it's just a perfect example of where opportunity can be found, sometimes in unlikely places. You just got to train yourself to look for it. Now, I'm pretty new to the entrepreneurial game, so I'm, I'm very uh, impressed by the people who just have honed that sense of entrepreneurship, and they can spot opportunity where other people can't see it. Believe it or not, you'll be a happier person if you learn how to do that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.